Hello and welcome to The Hot Dish, comfort food for rural America. I'm Heidi Heitkamp, former U.S. Senator from the great state of North Dakota. And I'm Joel Heitkamp, Heidi's a much younger brother. And if I can just add, a lot of what you're going to hear here on The Hot Dish uh, was generated through me. But that's a whole nother issue. We'll talk <laughs> yeah, about because, another time. Because you have been on the cutting edge of reproductive rights for so long, Joel. So long. Well, I'm the one with six grandkids, so you catch up then. <laughs> well, but rub it in, Joel. Just rub the salt in the wound. Today's subject for our podcast is, in fact, the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which reversed Roe v. Wade and removed federal protections. And when you live in a state like North Dakota, the only thing that you've had over these many years has been federal protection and federal access to the health care that you need and desire. In, in some states, it doesn't matter, states like California. But let me tell you, in many states that are dominated by legislatures that I think all too often don't represent majority opinions, this is a big, big deal. Well, especially when you look at rural America, uh, you know, people are struggling. They're struggling for access to reproductive health care. And these are states that are going to need more maternity care, not less. Uh, and it's just not there for them, Heidi. We keep hearing these stories of women who are suffering miscarriages, topic pregnancies, and they're turning to wait just because their providers aren't clear what's even allowed anymore. People are in fear of providing this type of care. Heidi, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that guns have more rights in the South than women. I think it'd be hard to argue that any other way. So I invited an old and dear friend of mine, Cecile Richards. Many of you have seen her on national television. She's long been the uh, spokesperson for Planned Parenthood. She ably led that organization, has recently stepped aside, but um, she continues to be in the fight for women's rights, continues to be in the discussion, and uh, really kind of a great thought leader for women across the country on how we secure this all important rights, not just for women in California and New York, but women across the board. And before we even began, Cecile, I was going through some old pictures of when I ran for governor in the state of North Dakota and your mother, Ann Richards, so graciously came and campaigned for me. And what a wonderful breath of fresh air. I just wonder what what the world would be like and what the narrative would be like if your mom was still alive today. Oh, you're so, so sweet to say that, Heidi. And there's nothing she loved more than campaigning in rural America for women. And so that's a great memory. She was right. Well, listen, you do not stand in the shadow of your mother at all. You stand as a giant among so many women in this country, someone who has been willing to risk it all. And, and we all know that when you take unpopular stands with aggressive minority of people, you risk not only kind of um, getting your feelings hurt, but you risk a lot more. But the one thing that Joel and I know is that caricatures of rural America as it relates to the issue of reproductive rights are not fair. Wouldn't you say, Joel, that uh, visiting with people every day, you get a better sense of kind of where folks are? Well, there's a way that I definitely can tell. First off, you know, the, the vast majority of calls I get are from conservatives. And when you broach this subject, they don't call anymore because they're scared. 
uh, they're on the wrong side of the issue. They know they're on the wrong side of the issue. They know someone in, in their life and maybe someone that was really close to them that needed this medical attention. And in the end, they don't want to, they just don't want to talk about it. It's a very silent majority out there that love the work that you did on their behalf, Cecile. Well, I think it's a really good point, Joel, because that was what I found in the many years at Planned Parenthood is that, you know, people who came into our clinics, and a lot of them from small towns all across this country, they weren't coming to make a political statement. They were coming because they need access to affordable health care, which, as you know, particularly in rural America, uh, for women is hard to come by. I want to talk first and foremost about women's health care. Um, one of the issues that that I talked a lot about when I was in the United States Senate was the overwhelmingly large number of rural hospitals that were closing and what that meant for uh, families, for farm families, for rural families. But more importantly, what that meant for women who were of childbearing age. I talked to women who literally have to move to a large town their last couple months of pregnancy just to make sure that they're within appropriate distance to a hospital to deliver a baby. And so it's not just this issue of access to reproductive rights. It's a whole issue of what's happening with health care for rural Americans and particularly rural women. That's right, Heidi. And one, thank you for your like years and years of service and championing these issues because you know, we do, we hear a lot about the closure of rural hospitals, which of course in my part of the country in the South is even more profound than the rest of the country. But what we don't hear about as much is the loss of OBGYN care and obstetric care, even in some of the hospitals that remain open. And there is a maternal mortality crisis in this country. It disproportionately impacts uh, rural people and rural women. I think Complications from pregnancy and childbirth um, are are a leading cause of death for women between the ages of 15 and I think 44, and it's much higher uh, for women in rural America. And of course, it's it's not just having a baby; it's all the other attendant things. It's the prenatal care, it's the postnatal care, uh, it's a lot of the services that when you don't have an OBGYN or don't have those services, people go without. And what's interesting to me is now we're hearing reports of OBGYNs not wanting to practice in states like mine, a states like North yep. Dakota that have a ban after six weeks because they don't believe they can provide quality care. And that's a huge, huge problem for families. And if we want to grow families in rural America, we better make them young family friendly. And that's not what we're doing. No, it's right. I mean, there's just heartbreaking stories coming out of states like Idaho of OBGYN saying, I simply can't practice here anymore because I can't give the best medical care to my patients. I mean, I've talked to, you know, oncologists in Texas in my home state who are saying, I can't uh, even provide care to some of my pregnant patients uh, because it's so complicated what they need to fight cancer uh, and what the restrictions are in a state like Texas on getting care makes it impossible. This is not why doctors went to medical school. And I, I, you're completely right that I think we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg here in terms of where um, new OBGYNs are choosing to do the residency, where they're going to establish a practice. It is not going to be in states where people can provide uh, the full range of medical care. For me, Cecile, I think that at times when you look at 
kind of that Trump Republican, that uh, that hard right Republican. We always think of someone that's such an ideologue that they really aren't in touch with the world and they're not, you know, maybe not even that bright. And I don't think that's true. Uh, living where I live, I think they're very strategic. They were strategic when it comes to the Supreme Court. Uh, they're strategic in, in large part of what Heidi just said, which is, as the father of a, a nurse practitioner, I can tell you this, they want them to live in fear. I mean, they want medical providers to live in fear of them because the more they get to say, look, I'm not touching that, I'm not going anywhere near that, the more they're going to win. And so if you can put a stereotype behind it where, you know, this person can, you can blow up their world, you can blow up their life in their rural community, then then you basically have the control you're looking for. I completely agree, Joel. Um, but it is interesting, and we'll probably get into this, but just I think some of the backlash that we're seeing and what surprised other folks, but I think probably not the three of us so much, about what we've seen in Kansas and Wisconsin and other states where people are really understanding that this lack of ability to get medical care, to be able to make their own decisions about probably the most important thing you'll do in your life, which is be pregnant and have a, you know, have a family, uh, that it is, it, this is not a political issue for most Americans. This is a very deeply personal issue. And the uh, opportunity to have a healthy pregnancy is, that's, I'm sorry, that crosses party lines. Yeah. I'm curious um, what you think is going to happen with the lawsuit in Texas. And just by way of background, a number of women who were denied care um, really risking their lives and certainly risking their opportunity in the future to have children have said enough is enough. You have the state has interfered with my health care. We are going to sue the state to prevent this from happening. What do you I mean, as somebody who's still very engaged and involved, Cecile, what do you think is going to happen with that kind of litigation? And do you think they'll be successful in Texas? It's a really good question because I don't know, just given the political environment in Texas, how successful they'll be. But as you say, here in Texas, we've had 13 women and doctors sue the state over um, this, the laws that really have prevented them from getting care they needed, in many cases, life-saving care. You know, we had one woman, uh, Amanda Zorowski, literally had to go into septic shock. She is not even sure she can have another healthy pregnancy because of what happened to her. The stories, they go on and on. They're horrific. No pregnant person anywhere should have to face this kind of sort of intrusion by the state in their medical care. I don't know what the outcome will be in terms of the the case, but it is absolutely generating a conversation both here in Texas and I think around the country about this exact issue, which is we should not have government and politicians getting between doctors and medical providers and their patients, because that's why doctors went to medical school, (laughs) because they know what is best for their patient. The other case that I've been following is the one in Indiana. Um, with the Ohio, young Ohio girl who had been raped by a family member and uh, had to go to Indiana. And the Indiana Attorney General has decided this is his business and basically has now threatened the physician that provided that health care to that young. I think she was only 10, right, Cecile? Exactly. She was 10 years old. And of course, she had to leave the state 
of Ohio, um, Heidi, because there was the abortion access wasn't available to her. Dr. Bernard did provide an abortion and has been, ever since then, has been attacked by the this vigilante attorney general in the state of Indiana. Uh, she just had to go through an entire day-long hearing. It's unbelievable to me the lengths to which politicians will go to prevent people from getting access to care. I think this, this story is horrifying. And the, frankly, the politics of this are horrifying. This is not the kind of country people want to live in. And you've got these radicals on the other side that continue to inject their opinion. Exactly. I mean, of course, that, that Kansas um, ballot initiative overwhelmingly in support of abortion rights in that state and of course, the majority of voters were Republicans. These, you know, this was not a Democratic state, not a Democratic vote. We just saw in the state of Wisconsin in that Supreme Court race, again, uh, this was a, a a race in the middle of the spring, off year, everything, record turnout. And the interesting thing to me about that, because I've now looked at the polling post-election, not only did the judge who supported abortion rights win by 11 points in a, in a very swing state, but in every single area, she won voters on this issue, including the most rural, reddest parts of Wisconsin. So as you say, this is not a blue-red issue. This is not a rural-urban issue. This is a basic American freedom issue. And I, and I just think, how many times do we have to demonstrate this is, this is the American people want people to be able to make their decisions about pregnancy, not politicians. Well, in large part, Cecile, don't you believe that that's because it's been legal uh, for that long, that we all know someone that has had to have an abortion? In fact, we all know many people that have had to have an abortion, and we sit next to them at church, we sit next to them at ball games, we sit next to them in a bar. Yep. And uh, when we look at them, we don't see them the way the anti-abortion people want us to see them. And in fact, uh, in many cases, they're, they're some of our best friends or family members. Yeah. I mean, Joel, I think that's right in that I think people are now being more open. Of course, this has sort of been like a secret society, if you will, even though one in four women in this country have had an abortion. It was not talked about. And look, I think this is very healthy that we're having this conversation in America and because it is a personal issue. I think this is going to dominate politics now. For the, for the foreseeable future until we get things turned around. I do too. I want to, so now I've watched kind of the tactic of the people on the right who understand they're losing the American people. And so now their tactic is to say, these people want you to have an abortion up until the time when the, right before the baby's born. I mean, so they want to absolutely make extreme arguments that have no validity in fact. Well, it's important to understand, and as most people know, most abortions are very early, um, although, of course, as they're becoming criminalized and doctors are becoming criminalized, it's pushing abortions later and later because people have to figure out how to travel out of state or travel out of country or a whole host of things. But in general, people make these decisions early on. And I think most folks understand that. I do think I mean, I know this is a tactic by um, the extremists who want to ban all abortions. And I think we just have to take it right back to the lived experiences of most, most people. As Joel said, everybody knows somebody who's had a complicated pregnancy or has had to make a decision about a pregnancy. And I think we're 
kind of letting them define the narrative, it really undercuts what is the lived experience of people in, in America. And you're right. I firmly believe the women I'm seeing in Texas who are going on um, television in some cases and telling their story, it's horrifying to me that we are in this position where women have to do that in order to wake up um, the body politic and sort of take this issue on. But that may be what, what it's going to take, Heidi. Cecile, for 14 years, I served in the North Dakota State Senate. and uh, Thank you. Well, yeah, well, trust me, uh, many I was in the minority. But let me let me tell you this. I believe in many ways the issue for them was about money. Uh, I do, and I think it's that way on a national scale. And for many of them, I believe that when, when you get them alone, when they're just in a room alone, I, I believe that they think that they just killed the cash cow, that they don't have that group of uh, ideologues out there anymore that are strictly going to donate based off of one issue. And you're seeing them now substitute that issue in many cases with guns. But the truth of the matter is they made a lot of money on the, the pro-life movement and the pro-life movement now feels they won and there's less checks being written. Well, it's a good point. Look, I, I think I see it around the state. I, it's certainly in Texas. It's like they're the dog that caught the bus. And now what are they going to do? Right. Because they just it was easy when they could just sort of, uh, you know, say all these hyperbolic things about women and abortion and everything. And now they're in, facing maybe not only the loss of all these check writers, but they're also having to face the consequences of what they've done, because now in Texas, you can't make your decisions about a pregnancy. It is not safe to be pregnant in the state of Texas. And, and they are now responsible and we have to hold them, them accountable. I think what's to me discouraging, Joel, is what I see is now that abortion and women are seem to be, you know, a lessening target because of the success in overturning Roe, they're instead turning on other people like LGBT folks transgender families. It's really sort of the meanness of this, this breed of Republican leadership is not something that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And I think that's, I hate to think that that's where we're headed. And believe me, you talk to young people in America, um, this is their number one voting issue. This is something that they cannot believe. And of course, those of us who have young people in our lives can't believe they're inheriting uh, you know, a, a world where they have fewer rights than we did. This is going to drive young people to the polls until this gets right. Yeah. Well, listen, you are a hero of ours. You have stood against the worst kind of abuse fighting for women. And every woman in America owes you a debt of gratitude, Cecile, for you being their champion. It's absolutely true. Listen, it's an honor, and it's it's great to get to meet Joel after all these years. Um, he's just as ornery as you said, and uh, that's so so well, great. Well, and you got to admit, Cecile, I do look more like her uh, grandson than her uh, oh, her brother. <laughs> Thank you all. Now we're going to be joined by Dr. Sarah Traxler. She's the chief medical officer with Planned Parenthood, North Central States. Uh, Dr. Traxler, good to have you on the hot dish. Thank you so much for having me today. It's good to be here. That year went pretty fast, didn't it? It sure did. There's been a lot going on. 
you know, I've lived in the upper Midwest for a really long time. And as you probably are both aware, there's been quite a lot of hostility towards abortion rights in the upper Midwest, in the Dakotas for a very long time. So we've always had to navigate these really difficult situations for people getting um, abortion care up here. However, it really has dramatically changed since the Dobbs decision because there are no local options for people um, in many of the places that I work in right now. And so when you look at what's happening, when you look at the people that that reach out to you, what are you hearing in some of the ruralist of the rural states? Well, uh, you know, I'm definitely hearing that access to sexual and reproductive health care often depends on your zip code and how much money you have. And I think I hear that most often from some of our patient navigators who are really the ones boots on the ground, helping patients navigate all of the resources that they need to collect in order to do that travel. And, you know, ultimately what we're finding is that not everybody actually has the capability to do that, even if they are getting resources from a support fund, because it's not just the money for the appointment, but it is the time to travel, the time away from work, the time needed to get childcare while you're away. And that's just not accessible to everyone. When you look at uh, direct impact to families and direct impact to women, you're a service provider. You've been doing this for a lot of years. You obviously chose your uh, specialty with a with an eye towards helping women. How has this change in the constitutionality of this right? How has that affected your ability to provide services to the women that you thought you went to medical school to protect and serve? For many, many years, I actually traveled to South Dakota to provide abortion care, and I'm no longer able to do that. And um, I provide most of the abortion care that I do in the state of Minnesota, which is, a, as you both know, a very protective state when it comes to abortion access. But I also travel to Iowa and Nebraska. And, you know, I see patients from rural areas who really struggle to get to those large urban areas where abortion access is available. Because when you look at the landscape of abortion access, most abortion clinics aren't going to be in a rural area. They're often concentrated in urban areas because that's where physicians are available to do this type of care. And that's what I do. I travel to major metropolitan areas to provide this care. So that means patients always have to travel to me, that it's not available to them in their communities. Anytime there isn't healthcare available in a local community for somebody, it negatively impacts health outcomes in that area. North Dakota just passed its six-week ban. You're seeing this continue across the country. What's happening now is it's driving people to make this decision or at least to secure a procedure later in the pregnancy, not earlier in the pregnancy, because you've made it more difficult. And that is just counterintuitive, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we're actually definitely seeing that um, in our affiliate, uh, which serves five states here up in the upper Midwest. We're seeing more second trimester abortions. And I think it's a little bit of a combination of things. One is that patients are confused. This is manufactured confusion about what's legal and what's not. And it's constantly changing and there are constant challenges. And I think patients are just really confused about what they are able to access in their own state. And the other big piece is that there's so many barriers for someone to be able to access abortion if they're going to have to go out of their state to do it. It takes a really long time to coordinate logistically all of the things that need to be put in place in order for a patient to get to that appointment. And it also 
includes necessary resources like cost of the abortion itself. And the time that it takes to get all of those resources together pushes people further and further into higher gestational ages. And we know that although abortion is an incredibly safe procedure, no matter when you do it, it's actually much safer the earlier you do it. So you're right. We're pushing people further into pregnancy and actually increasing their risk of complications with the procedure. I have a question in regards to men, uh, because, you know, much of what's being talked about when it comes to women's reproductive rights is just that, uh, a woman's rights. What about the men? What do you see when you're providing this type of care from the men? So I don't want to assume that I know everything that a, a patient's partner is thinking, because some patients don't come with their partners. But what I have seen overall is that men are really supportive of women's bodily autonomy. I think more often than not, I see partners and boyfriends and fathers and um, friends coming in with patients who express to me that they don't want the government interfering in someone's ability to express their bodily autonomy because they believe everybody has the right to bodily autonomy and determine what's best for them and their lives and their futures. And I think, you know, in some ways they may see it as a slippery slope. If, if the government can impose upon me restrictions on what I can do with my body, What's to say that in the future, the government can't impose things onto them as well? I guess my question, doctor, is how do you get public policy that reflects what we know to be the majority opinion in this country? Oh, that is a very tricky question for a doctor who thinks that it's, it's, all <laughs> of it. <laughs> it's all about voting rights. And I think one of the things that's been really clear is that uh, there's been disenfranchisement of voters for a very, very long time. And oftentimes, the what I have seen in the legislative bodies in the states where I provide care, the legislature actually doesn't reflect the will of the people. Um, and that's what needs to change. And that's that's challenging when you have people who are in the legislature who continually have this one agenda item or two, if we want to talk, you know, about gender affirming care, where these are the the issues that they hinge their legislative session on, and we can't change what's happening in the legislature, and we unless we change who's in the legislature. So, Dr. Traxler, I know that your defense of women's health care isn't about you. I, I get that your passion and and your you, you know the oath that you took to provide health care, but I have to ask you one question about you. Do you fear, I mean, do, do you fear for yourself and your family and your co-workers by providing this medical uh, care? You know, honestly, I never have. And, uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm naive. Maybe it's because I feel really secure with, the or with my organization who cares a lot about my safety and makes sure that I'm safe. Maybe it's because I live in the Twin Cities and I live in a place where what I do is incredibly supported by all of the community around me, but I have not. I have not felt fearful. Now that's pretty amazing. I think when you look at what's happening across the country and you realize that people who now who may have selected OBGYN as their choice uh, for residency and for their specialty are saying, I'm not getting into that because in, in so many states, I no longer can fulfill my oath 
given the restrictions that the government has placed on me. Um, are you seeing some of that with people who are coming up in the ranks, medical students, or do you think that this is something that once things settle down, we'll once again see people who are willing to enter into that kind of practice? I don't know. You know, actually, I was reading an article about that this morning, about how there's been a significant decrease in the number of people in medical school who've chosen to go into obstetrics and gynecology. And it's hard to know whether or not that really has to do with the Dobbs decision and abortion. But what I can tell you is that we train residents all the time in all of our health centers, and we have gotten multiple requests from multiple residency programs asking if we can take on more of their their residents as well as ours to help train them in abortion. And that shows us that the medical community truly and completely understands how essential this type of medical care is and how essential it is for people to learn it and to be trained in it because it's life-saving. I mean, it is a literal life-saving procedure in certain cases, and this is something that every obstetrician and gynecologist should learn, and they are not going to have the opportunity to learn. In addition to that, the fact that we have fewer people going into obstetrics and gynecology only compounds the physician healthcare crisis we have in this country, especially in rural areas, because we are seeing maternal health in rural areas be significantly impacted by our physician crisis, for sure. And we're just going to see more of that. Yeah. And if you think about advocacy, so many people now are saying, look, I've been silent on this issue for a long time. It's not something that's been part of my practice, but yet I know that it's time for my voices to be heard. And I will tell you, we've had physicians in the North Dakota legislature who have come to testify, who have gotten threats when they returned, but yet they stand firm in their belief that patient advocacy for life-saving procedures is part of why they became physicians. And I just applaud all of you. You guys are doing tremendous work in very, very difficult situation. We're really glad we live next to Minnesota, uh, where uh, common sense prevails and where people care about individual rights and freedom. Um, I, I just wish that it was a contagion that would reach across the Red River and certainly into South Dakota so we could see a little common sense in our in our public policy as well. Maybe someday. <laughs> we'll be working on it, I'm sure. Well, Dr. Traxler, you're an absolute joy, and not just because you're, you're, you agreed to come on the hot dish, but because uh, of the work that you do. And keep it up, because everything... There is a season and eventually this will come around as people become more and more aware of the dangerous consequences of reversing Roe v. Wade and of these public policies that are being enacted by a very small minority of people in our country restricting access to freedom. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I agree. People are going to learn someday that this was the wrong move. It's unfortunate what's going to have to happen, though, for people to realize that. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Hot Dish. We'll be serving up great conversations on all the issues that matter to rural America. Please stay tuned and keep listening. Hey, Heidi. See you in two weeks.